Hello, I'm Dr. Jennifer Jones, your host for The Secret Life of Neurohospitalist, a podcast where we explore the nuances of doing neurohospitalist work and of caring for the specific patient population. This episode is about burnout, and it just so happens that I'm coming off two nights and had one of the busiest shifts that I can ever recall last night. I got no more than an hour of interrupted sleep somewhere between 3 and 5 a.m. Needless to say, I'm exhausted. I might be burned out today, but I expect I'll feel better after a good night of sleep or two. For this podcast episode, I talked to my colleague, Dr. Robbie Hendry, about burnout. He and I decided to job share over a year ago, but we've been unable to do it because of difficulty recruiting. Both of us cited burnout as a factor for our desire to go part-time, but as I dug into the specific definition of burnout, depersonalization, lack of empathy or negative attitudes towards patients, feeling of decreased personal achievement and emotional exhaustion, I don't know if that describes my state all the time. It certainly does at times, but often I think it's a matter of having too much on my plate. The reason I want to work part-time is more like a boiling over than a burning out. But at the same time, I don't know why some people can handle that boiling over or why I used to be able to, and now I just don't have it in me. Maybe that's burnout. So with the hope that we can actually go part-time in the new year of 2024, we decided to see if we could shed some light on this pervasive topic. I'm Robbie Hendry. I'm a neurointensivist and neurohospitalist, uh, neurointensivist by training, currently practicing as a neurohospitalist. Been in Asheville at Mission Hospital for about seven and a half years. And uh, prior to that, I, I came straight out of fellowship. I did my ICU fellowship at Duke and have been here ever since, and I love it here, so I think I'm probably making here for the while. Work. Yeah, making it work. And since you've been here, there have been a number of changes, uh, you know, some systemic with the transfer of ownership of a nonprofit to a profit hospital. Our work and our group has been pretty stable over the years in terms of our, our, our physicians. Right. We've had some loss of the APPs, but we've got a real stable core group, which is probably why we have survived. Mm-hmm. And I guess I wondered, you being you know newer in this, did you learn or anticipate or have any sense of it coming? In other words, in training, you know, I guess we hear some about it, but did you have any specific conversations or education around burnout and how to or how not to? I think none whatsoever in terms of my actual training. I mean, I think it's all just assumed that if you make it through the crucible of residency and hundred hour weeks and, you know, constant call, uh, and self deprivation, then you've made it. And then that's the burnout. Once you make it past that, then it's not an issue because as an attending, you get time off all over the place and you get paid more and everything's great. But right. um, Is that what you saw from your attendings or did you ever, when you think back on it, can you, can you think of attendings who you think may have been burnt out? I can't really, when I think back, but of course that's a much longer time ago. But the attendings did not seem burned out to me when I was in training. What yeah, about you? I would you? agree. I would agree. They didn't seem burned out. And I, something about them, they seemed a little more removed. They were off in their office doing research. And, you know, my main interactions were with the senior residents and then the fellows. And, right. And, you know, that's who I spent most of my time with on a daily basis. But I, I can't say that I at least perceived as a trainee that they were 
significantly burned out. Right. And you definitely, I mean, I re- recall an attending saying to me uh, at UConn, oh, you think you're busy now. Uh-huh. You just wait until you <laughs> become an attending. And, and I remember thinking, oh, you are lying. Like yeah. there is no way you get busier than you are as a resident How or can fellow. You possibly work more? Right. You can't work more. Um, I have some thoughts about that because it's a thing that sort of resonates with me over the years because, you know, there are times where I think she was right. <laughs> yeah. But it's a different kind of busy because, you know, your life expands too. Like That's the thing. It's so much easier as a trainee, especially if you're either single or don't have kids, to just put your nose down, even for years if you have to. And it's, it's not quite as much self-deprivation because you... I don't know, you assume that you're devoting all of yourself to this, but you can't devote all of yourself to anything for your entire life. Right. Eventually that comes to an end. And so... So like there's a mindset during training that it's a a, a limited window of time in which you're going to be self-depriving everything. Right. And that then you'll get a chance to catch up. That was definitely my assumption. Just my tacit assumption was, oh, once I make it through this, I'll have plenty of time to catch up. But the, the one thing that happened... Right at the end of training, we had our first kid, and then we had our second kid at the end of my fellowship, and so that turned everything on its <laughs> Yeah, on its there head. goes every minute yeah. of your free time. Well, <laughs> there goes my priorities and what I want to do with my free time even. You know, right. uh, if I didn't have free time, no big deal right. before, but now I'm, I'm actively missing out on family time and family events and forming bonds and relationships, and that's for me, I think, been the biggest contributor to changes in my, in my burnout level. Yeah. So so let's talk about, I want to get back to that and to the idea of you in a two-physician household, too. Your wife is also a very busy, full-time practicing physician. And mm-hmm. so whether, you know, whether that makes it easier or surprisingly, when I looked up some stuff about burnout, it said that being married to a non-medical person increased the risk, which kind of makes some sense. At least your spouse can understand. Well, I think the fact that she's in the same profession, if not the same discipline, has definitely allowed us to just sort of vent a little bit easier. You know, when when you can talk about something terrible that happened with a patient or their family, um, you know, just about yeah. your experience with that she can instantly relate because she's been through some of the same training and knows some of the same things. You know, I've, I've been over to dinner with other uh, physicians who are married to non-physicians and I feel a little guilty when the, when the talk turns to medical talk because, you know, the spouse will to some degree kind of zone out because it's not relevant to him or her or, you know, they don't have the same depth of experience with that. So that part has been, helpful I think being married to her knowing what I'm going through I'm knowing what she's going through more or less yeah um, the fact that she's a full-time physician just in terms of logistics and time has been the major conflict I would say yeah it's, I mean the stressors around just the logistics of a day with two kids you know school and after school and I mean that I don't know. I used to feel that I was like the Biltmore family, just hiring out for everything. We were resistant to that for the longest time because we thought that that was sort of uh, compromising our roles as parents. And um, the straw that broke the camel's back was the pandemic. And our childcare evaporated. And so we had to very quickly find alternative arrangements. And we found essentially a nanny who came in every day and 
we thought, man, why, why didn't we do this earlier? And since that time, our, our nanny who was with us for three or four years, she went to graduate school and, and moved on and, and um, you know, has a career now and is no longer our nanny. And we haven't replaced her. We have taken back up the mantle of doing it ourselves, yeah. arranging the child transportation and the events and yeah. all of that stuff. There's other people who are full-time parents who are married to other full-time parents, and I'm sure they go through some of the same things. Yeah. I know it's not really unique to medicine, but what can be unique is the fact that you really just can't say no. You can't call in sick. You can't, right. uh, you know, if you can't fulfill your obligations at work, more or less, it's kind of up to you to help fill those obligations, find somebody to cover you. And that's not really the case in a lot of other professions. I'm yeah. sure it is for some, but that one aspect has made it tougher to juggle the logistics when there's an illness with a child or with one of us. Right. You know, with one of us, we wind up just putting our head down and working through it more often than not. But yeah, with a kid who can't go to school, you have to figure something out quickly. Right. And there's been a few times where... Uh, you know, I'm, I try not to, I feel very sexist about this, but she is uh, an outpatient primary care doc. And so canceling outpatients and rescheduling her clinic is slightly more feasible than me not showing up for code strokes. Yeah, we can't, we've got no options. Um, you know, and I, I want to say though, it's funny that you say that about sexist, because in thinking about this conversation, one of the things I remember, and I think I've probably told you before, um, is that time when, you know, you'd probably been there a year or something. It was one of those early morning meetings, maybe a neurovascular conference or something. And then right as it ended, you stood up and said, I got to go. I've got a sick kid. I got to get her to the doctor, like an ear infection or something. And it it struck me as so equitable, the two of you. And I had not, you know, having been the the parent myself, I always felt like I needed to sort of couch it in the like, uh, I I wouldn't have said it out loud because I I felt that, you know, there's the the woman's always juggling the kids and work Mm -hmm. and it might be perceived as a little bit of an annoyance by, you know, men who aren't. Like, oh, she can't be here because she's got to go do that or whatever. And I felt so encouraged by you just doing that. I thought it looked like um, I kind of experienced it as like a new generation coming up of men and women who are equally participating. I don't know if that's true. What do you think about your cohort? I I like to think that, uh, you know, I guess I would qualify myself technically just by mere months as an elder millennial. Um, (laughs) But I think that you know, the people I know that I came up through in school and training have similar views, I think. Like everybody's sharing it equally pretty well. That's so great. A little bit of a cultural shift. I think. One of the things that irks me most is that when I'm alone with the kids, every now and then one of my friends or family especially will say, oh, you're babysitting the kids. (laughs) No, I'm I'm their dad. Yeah, Yeah, I'm parenting. Yeah. I I don't take over as the secondary, you know, parent when when the primary one's not available. Right. And I think that we really uh do have a a nice split of how we feel we're we're related to our kids. That's been eroded a little bit just by my my demands at the hospital, which have gone up a bit. Um Yeah. And by the default nature of her being the first one to cancel. That's why whenever I possibly can, when there's a sick kid or some other emergency that needs to be attended to if it's remotely possible just because she does it so much more often i, I try to make it happen yes but i can, but yeah. I can leave yeah and, and carrying your share yeah yeah not to because the burden in the outpatient although it's easier to cancel a day than 
where do you ever put all those people back in and I mean, stuff? It's easier in the moment, but it's still a major slog to yes. have to go through that and reschedule people, and yeah. then you wind up double booking and overbooking to yeah. make up the yeah, make sure those patients get seen. And so right. it's, it's not nothing. It's not like she can just well, I'll just call off. Um, no, it's, and then and then patients are angry. Like, yeah, that's a huge ordeal. I yeah. used to feel. In fact, when I worked outpatient, I feel that I have more um, autonomy over my time. Now, even though you're absolutely right, if something comes up when we're on, it's just, sorry, somebody else has to do it. I got to scramble and find somebody. I guess that's the benefit of you have extended family around, which mm-hmm. neither of us do, but. Not nearby. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and so what do you, so talk to me about what do you call, what is burnout? Let's talk about like what that is exactly when we say, I feel like I throw the word around a lot, you know, even like, why are you going part-time? I mean, my kids are now teens. My daughter's about to get her license to drive. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Terrifying and also liberating. And uh, everything's a little easier. I'll tell you, it gets easier as they get older in some way, you know, they mm-hmm. need you around, but um but I, I just am doing it because I need it for my own mental health. I don't know if I, as I looked up burnout as it's defined, I thought, well, maybe I don't have that. Maybe I'm just tired. I don't know if it's burnout specifically or I just don't want to work as much. Could just yeah. be that. But tell me about what you think about when you say you're feeling burnout or do you think you are? Tell me about it. Uh, I have no doubt that I am or that I have been. And I, I think it's a little bit of a nebulous uh, spectrum of, of ways that you can feel about your job and about how it affects you. Um, I know that lately in the past few years, especially with just the enormous tidal wave of COVID changing healthcare staffing and healthcare demands, that the term moral injury has been brought into that, where previously that was described, you know, with Afghanistan veterans who had to experience civilians getting killed or something like that. Yeah, yeah. That's, of course, something that goes against your core beliefs or something you can't prevent even though your core beliefs would say that you should. I think that that wraps itself into healthcare a little bit in in that if you can't protect the things that are most important to you at your core, your own sanity, your own self-care, your family... um, your care for your patients. If you can't do those things in the way that you feel that you're meant to do, that's what burnout is. It's not just working too much. Right. It's right. if working too much impacts your ability to care for yourself or your family or your patients in the way that you feel that you should. That's to me what burnout is. And that's so you're just, you're compromising your principles. Like you said, like the moral injury, like you're, you're having to do, uh, care that doesn't feel quite adequate or something or totally. that you might be in a position to do yeah well the first i mean i start i became depressed and uh it was something that was new for me i hadn't gone through that before in my life and i thought it was just something unrelated to work but then mm-hmm. with counseling and and things like that i was led to identify my main trigger and stressor it's yeah. just you know the constant, the constant, sort of the unrelenting of nature of it too, I guess. But the other thing is, I, I, as I was even just looking up stuff like for recommendations for treatment for burnout, it's, you know, I find a lot of the recommendations very unhelpful. Yeah, I printed some of them out and there was like even some tests, some scales, you know, there's some tools that you can use to sort of rank that. yourself yeah. on the burnout thing. And, you know, um, I think some elements of it would get at like sort of just feeling like an imposter or something. Imposter syndrome was maybe a part of it. And then part of it was 
you know, some definitely depression and sort of lack of motivation, depersonalization, uh-huh. stuff like that. But um, but then, like, the solutions are just inadequate, I see. I, I didn't see anything that sounded like, yeah, that would really get at it. Self-care, make sure you yeah. exercise and sleep regularly. Well, sleep's right out the window with an yeah. inpatient neurology yeah. job. Uh, make sure that you have social interaction and, you know, things that fill your bucket. Well, sometimes that's tough, too. Well, especially when you're when you're clinically depressed. You're not interested. That's yeah. another chore. I've, you I've know? Yeah. not participated in things that probably would have helped the burnout because of that. But it's hard, you know, you know, like it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle because, yeah, you don't really want to get together with people and stuff when you're, you know, feeling sort of depleted on every front, you know, and you're not already feeling like you don't have enough time with your family or something. I think that becomes another burden, you know, which then adds to it, like more stuff you're not able to do that you should be doing. It's like that constant narrative, you know. I'm a little bit of an extrovert compared to the rest of my family, so I recharge a little bit by oh, being around good. people and okay. and you know social interaction, mm-hmm. just meeting up with people at a at a anywhere, yeah, and just doing anything. That, which um, is why you've been such a great benefit for my morale. Yeah. yeah, with the meetings, you know, for us as a group, getting together at a bar once a month, yeah, having a beer, cerebellar rounds is perfect. Yeah, I stole that from my uh, residency, and it, it was so helpful then just yeah. to vent and, yeah. or even if not talking about work, just to be around That's right. work friends. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's therapeutic, but when you're so burned out and depressed that you don't even want to do that and you start canceling, that's, yeah. it kind of defeats the purpose. That's right. So, I mean, uh, some of what I was thinking about when I looked at um, the recommendations, again, you know, some of the, I, I thought all of them seemed kind of weak, like you're saying, like, Breathing exercises, meditation, uh, yoga, blah, 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 all that. Yeah, that's all good for you, but I think you already need to be a little bit healthy, and that's like maintenance. I don't think that gets you out of uh, the you know, the funk and the, the situation psychologically that burnout can be. And so when I was thinking, like, well, intuitively, just what would my intuition think would be, you know, the answer to burnout? And sadly... I think the only answer, like if you're not going to quit, right. would be you just have to care less. Yeah, but that itself is one of the main symptoms that you have to deal with yeah. the burnout itself. And it's kind of a self-preservation, self-defense mechanism. Like I have to of... care less about this job that I've my whole life been determined to be. It's a calling, and, and if you care, you, yeah. you, know, you should care. I mean, that's points to some of the things that we do that independent of how many hours we're working or how many patients we're seeing, just some of the things we see are emotionally taxing. Yes. We see so many people die in the ICU or in the ER and have a lot of end of life discussions with families, which personally I actually find a little fulfilling and, and it's one of the things I enjoy about our job and that brings me satisfaction. One of the things that may not bring me satisfaction is all of these end of life things when you have conflicts with families not doing what the patient would right. want or prolonging things when it's obvious that it's futile care. Right. Um, not so much so that we can say this is futile, we're not going to do it, but enough that without being paternalistic, we have to allow this. Yeah. But, you know, right. the, that mistrust of the experts or the medical system, I think, has definitely been longer lasting than I was hoping. It's definitely become more of a permanent feature of yeah. parts of society. Right. The doctors have been the vanguard of all the knowledge. Now Google has put it out there mm-hmm. and we're a little bit like, you really can't understand which is true. 
Uh, kind of. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think that at least with medical evidence and literature, it's took years for us yeah. to partially understand it. We're still working on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, back to moral injury and, and uh, burnout. So how's Sydney doing? Does she, does she feel any sense of burnout, or is it easier in her role as a outpatient provider, or what's your sense there? Um, she does in different ways. I think that the she was really on the front lines of the pandemic, so that affected her much more profoundly than it did me, at least in terms of direct interaction yeah. with patients and their families oh, and things. So that was a major factor for her. Um, you know, as a primary care doc, she has totally different stressors and, and things that she has to worry about. I think that on a daily basis, she is able to find a lot of fulfillment and taking care of her patients and getting to know them long term and forging these relationships. And I think she gets a lot of, I don't want to say burnout prevention, but she gets a lot of job satisfaction and fulfillment from those things that mm-hmm. aren't really necessarily available to us as hospitalists. So one of the things that she has really suffered from burnout from is the same thing that I am with trying to make a family schedule work. And so in that way, my burnout has affected her double fold just because um, with me being more absent, both physically and sometimes emotionally, it's it's, um, made her burnout just from the, the stress of constantly having to be the atlas of our household and hold right. everything up. And right. so that's, that was the initial reason that I decided to go part-time because I mean, I still love my job, even all the, the burnout inducing parts of it. I just want to do a little bit less of it. Yeah. I think having that time in between uh, insults is really important. For I me. agree. I, I'm coming in tomorrow for six days and I've been off for like four or five. I mean, just, you know, I had a pretty good chunk of time off here and I feel like ready and kind of motivated and it's uh, it takes not too much to get back there, you know, yeah. to feel like I really appreciate this job and I, I value it. it you got to remember that. And when you're just working so much, it's hard to keep that in the front, I think. Well, for me, having that time away from work is probably the single biggest treatment uh, yeah. for burnout. And not that I want to quit or I don't like the job or I'm on, I mean the overarching problems with the healthcare system and payments and insurance. And, uh, that's a whole other issue that is probably the root cause of much of our burnout. Yeah. You know, when it comes the to system. Staffing. That's what I was going to ask you. What do you see about system, the system, which would be things that we could do to lessen burnout? Well, that goes to some of the core of moral injury of not being able to do what we think is right for our patients. You know, we give them a seizure medicine that we know they're not going to be able to take, right. but it's the only one that's worked for them in the hospital. We know they're not going to be able to afford it, but what other option do we have? Right. You know, that's stressful. That or um, not being able to find placement for our patients who we know can get better with some rehab, but they just can't. They don't have the insurance for right. it, or they need to go to long-term acute care, but that's physically impossible because of insurance reasons. Yeah, so we know that it would really drastically improve their outcome, but we just have to keep soldiering on yeah. in an inferior way because of the system, because of insurance, because of payments. And that's uh, stressful. Yeah. For sure. And that is definitely a moral injury to everybody practicing. I, I will say that I was worried about our, um, you know, our, our corporate transition uh, to for-profit healthcare. Um, and that's affected things a lot less than I thought it would in terms of uh, all of that stuff uh, in the sense that the entire system is kind of bad wherever you go. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, in the past had done some moonlighting for various not-for-profit systems and it's all the same problems everywhere. Right. Uh, both like the staffing even, problems and the 
uh, payment and the char the fees charged to patients and all of those things are are constant issues. Uh, I think around the entire country. I think it's a countrywide thing. You know, I think it's just the time that we lived in, but we as a culture have kind of decided that the only language that's legitimate about everything is economics. Uh -huh. And it's like, not everything is economics. There is an economics to many things. Mm -hmm. It's not why we do medicine. You know, we do it. Yeah, it's great that we can also make a comfortable living and, you know, have a good salary and security. But that is not the driver for anybody or for most people going into medicine. Well, it's the driver for some people engaged in medicine, just not the practitioners. And, right. You know, we're not in it for that. We're in it for right. the patients. And it's a, there's a huge disconnect between the, the, I mean, just speaking in, in overarching generalities in the entire nation, there's a big disconnect between the provision of care at the bedside and how it's arranged in the administrative level. Right. And it's not that our administrators are evil, it's just the entire system is... The system is based in some idea of economics, whether it's profit or non-profit, right. you know, like of economics being the driver, and that shouldn't be the driver, in my opinion, of healthcare. Well, I think whatever your political or economic leanings, I think everybody can probably agree on that. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to betray any other uh, issues That's right. about <laughs> right. the idea that market forces and the free market will act as the benevolent savior for all right. areas of society eventually right. but until we just recognize that yeah you got to pay attention to the market of of healthcare but that is not the reason for it then right. totally. we're just all going to be stuck in this system until we kind of get that you know the thing that keeps us going you know above all else is our patients and making sure that we do some good for our community and for them but i think there's especially with the the inflection point in all of this moral injury and burnout that the pandemic brought, there's this whole kind of trench warfare mentality where we're in it for the person next to us, not for the right. the army that we're serving. We're in it for our teammates and the nurses we work with and the patients. And we kind of have to take a little bit of a microcosm approach to, rather than seeing the big picture, just as a survival mechanism. Because Yeah, and maybe that works and that's enough. It's partially worked for me. I think, yeah. you know rather than feel like we're fighting within a broken system and have no power to change it, which is a huge factor in burnout. Right. We just take each battle as it comes and, and try our best to support each other and our patients. And that's, mm -hmm. that gives me a little satisfaction. Kind of like uh, uh, tend to your own garden. Tend to your own yeah. garden. Yeah. Put right. your own oxygen mask on. Yeah. First. Yeah. That's right. That's uh, right. Well, I, the one thing that's made the biggest difference for me is at least briefly when we were able to really go part-time before staffing changed. And it's coming. It made a huge difference. It, having that, that moment to recuperate and heal, I remember for the first time in years thinking, I'm ready to go back. I, yes. Let's see what's going on in the hospital. Yeah. I'm ready to jump in. And that's coming, right? It's coming. At least ostensibly. Yeah. We're going to get uh, locums, providing that there are some who we can <laughs> yeah. get. And yeah. you and I are going to do some closer to part-time work. Yeah, you got to have optimism about that or else it's hard to carry on. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. Well, I enjoyed that frank conversation with Robbie about a common yet difficult topic. Physicians in general are stoic, high-pressure, hard-working people, and talking about the emotional impact of this work on us as individuals takes some courage. But it's obviously important to talk about it in order to consider what it might be doing to us and how it might be managed. For Robbie and I, we're hoping that cutting back a little will help. 
Well, that's all for today's episode. And don't forget to like, share, and rate us. If you have questions or comments, email us at secretlifeneuro@gmail.com. at gmail.com.